We're, we don't come from a tradition of generations and generations. We didn't inherit a brewery from somebody else who taught all these uh, techniques. We, we do our research and we, we try to make um, something out of, out of nothing. We're, we're, um, how, many, how many breweries in Brussels were making Lambic with an American, a Portuguese, an Englishman and a Brazilian? I'm Owen Walsh, and you're listening to the Brussels Beer City Podcast. This edition of the podcast is a brief interruption to our regular broadcast schedule. As we're not talking diaspora bars this time around. Don't worry though, normal service on that front will resume soon. Instead, this episode is a one-off about a very particular kind of beer that's just about to be launched in Brussels. To mark the launch of Brussels Beer Project's Dance Articles, I sat down with five of the people involved in making this landmark beer happen. Why is it a landmark beer I can hear you screaming through your headphones? Well, to get the full story, you'll have to listen to our conversation, which took place a few weeks ago in the cellars under BBP's Dansart Brewery in central Brussels. But suffice to say this much by way of introduction. Lambic is Brussels' indigenous beer tradition, and having dominated Brussels' brewing scene 120 years ago, by the beginning of the 21st century, Brasserie Cantillon stood alone as the city's only Lambic brewer. Until... BBP announced their Dance Art Lambic program and released their first blends in December 2021. And for the intervening two years, Cantillon could continue to claim their place as the city's only remaining Geuse producer, Geuse being a blend of variously aged Lambics. Now, with the launch of BBP's Dance Art Geuse, there are two Brussels-based Geuse producers. But as I said, I let the brewers explain it all. Now, it's an episode for the beer nerds among you for sure, and it's a little longer than the usual format. But even if your knowledge of Lambic beer and brewing is barely skin deep, I still think you'll find something interesting in the story behind Brussels Beer Project's Dansartikus. So here's me talking to Tiago Falcone, David Santos, Jordan Keeper, Sam Fleet, and Dimitri Vanois of Brussels Beer Project. I hope you enjoy. months after you guys dragged me out to the Grand Place on a December night to talk about the launch of the Lambic. Uh, we're sitting in the barrel store, the cellar, what do you guys call it? The cellar, yeah, okay. I'm not always, I'm always intimidated interviewing brewers because, you know, they have this vocabulary that I'm not uh, necessarily familiar with. Um, yeah, here we are to, for a very special edition of the Brussels Beer City podcast. It doesn't sound like anything that's gone before and it won't sound like anything that comes again in the future. I'm sitting here with five brewers from Brussels Beer Project. I'll ask you guys to introduce yourselves real quick, and then we'll get talking about the beer, and we'll get talking about what we're doing here. Okay, maybe we can start 
go clockwise. Tiago, why don't you get started over there? Hello, guys. I'm Tiago Falcone. I'm from Brazil. I, I've been brewing around uh, for a while and ended up in Brussels Beer Project in March 2021, right at the end of the second season of Lambic. Came here to to Berlambik. And we I should also say you guys sometimes have funny job titles. So maybe as we go around the room, you can kind of clarify what it is that your job actually is, because to the outsider, it's not always clear who's the what is charge of what. Job title. Maybe not job title. everything. Maybe not job title, but at least what you do. Um, I brew the uh, beers at Brussels Beer Project, and uh, both breweries, Potsud and Dansat. Sam? Cool. Yeah, uh, my name's Sam, Sam Fleet. Um, I joined Brussels Beer Project uh, over six years ago, actually, not long after David. Uh, and with Dimitri, we were kind of there at the very beginning of the discussions around uh, what at the time we just called the Sour Project. Um, I think that was it, actually. It was just called the Sour Project. Uh, and at the time, I was um, brewing. My job title now is a little bit more um, old-fashioned production manager, so I <laughs> managed the new brewery, Port Sud. Uh, where we are now brewing, um, of course, all of our beers, uh, but uh, still um, there is a very large piece of my heart that is dedicated to the Donsar program. Uh, used to be the Sour program. Uh, and I'm Jordan Keeper. I uh, joined uh, Brussels Beer Project uh, in January of 2020, um, and I came specifically for um, making Lambic. Uh, and this has always been something that's super exciting. Uh, and um, yeah, it started brewing Lambic here shortly after uh, I joined. And uh, it's been uh, a really, really exciting uh, journey. Um, and uh, really uh, pumped to, to have some goes finally out there. Uh, David Santos, uh, I joined BBP in uh, May 2017, uh, back from Portugal, back in the days to Dansar was still a, a clean brewery. Uh, so I joined to take the lead on the creativity uh, of, the, of the new uh, pop-ups uh, and experimental brews from, uh, from Brussels Beer Project back in the days. Uh, at the moment I brew in uh, Port Sud, uh, after all of these years uh, at BBP I, I changed uh, with uh, with Sam uh, to to Port Sud to take the lead on the again on the creativity side of uh, of Port Sud uh, and again Dansar uh, was the foundation for for Port Sud and is a foundation for, for a foundation for me at BBP as well. And I'm uh, Dimitri Van Roy. Um, I'm probably the one with the the most funny title. I'm geek in chief, uh, but I've worn different hats over the years. I've been here for. For eight years, um, I started as taproom manager right when this brewery opened, uh, when we had our first beers here launched uh, November 2015. Um, went through lots of different events and jobs and, and stuff. Um, been always take taking care of the Wanderlust Festival, brewery selection on that, uh, geeky side, sort of transferring information of all the beers from brewers to the rest of the team. Obviously, in the beginning, we were just five. Now we're 40 people, so uh, there was a lot more work to do in that direction. And then I've been more involved on the branding and marketing side for the Dansar program, which in the last few years is, is definitely what I've been the most passionate about here. So we're talking about the Dansar brewery. That's for anyone who's unfamiliar with the sort of geography of Brussels. That's the downtown brewery, yeah? Um, and we're sitting here 18 months on from the first of the beers that came from the cellar that we're sitting in. So 
to give a, it doesn't really work visually, but to give a sense. Uh, so we're surrounded by 80 wooden barrels. There's a cool ship in the back. We're going to explain what all of these things mean in a minute. We're here because, well, on the one hand, it's the brewery's 10th birthday. So 2013 to 2023. If there is something to make you feel old mm -hmm. as a Brussels beer drinker, especially me, I think that you got, uh, BBP has been around for 10 years. It's that. Um, but it's also to mark the 10th anniversary, the 10th birthday, and sort of culmination of this project is the launch of the Dance Art Beers. That's what we're talking about today. Um, it's something that's really important. Before we start, somebody around the table needs to explain to me, to the people who are listening, what Lambic is and what Fears is. There's only one Belgian around the table, but I do, I'm going to open this up to the others. Somebody can take Lambic, somebody can take Goose, somebody can do both of them, I don't mind, but just to sort of give a context about the kind of beers we're talking about and also why they're important. Well, I can start with, it's a spontaneously fermented beer. Which means? It's uh, inoculated by different yeast and bacteria coming from our surroundings, so we don't pitch, we don't add any yeast, which is obviously the modern way of making beer very controlled, and, and this is not that much of a controlled process. We kind of prepare a liquid and then kind of leave it up to nature uh, to do something with it, something actually very yummy. <laughs> and then, so that's sort of lambic, right? Yes, I mean, without any details into the recipe and so forth, so on, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into some of the details then. So how, what is a lambic? Like, well, uh, explain to me what a basic lambic is. Who wants to take that challenge? Yeah, so lambic um, is, uh, like Dimitri said, spontaneously fermented beer um, that uh, is fermented in barrels. Um, and the experience of drinking lambic from a barrel is something that is, uh, you'll have uh, some nice uh, soft acidity. Um, you'll, uh, in the barrel itself, it will be flat. Um, and uh, lambic is used as a base ingredient uh, for goose, uh, which is probably the most common uh, lambic product. Um, but it's also used to make many other different kinds of beer. Um, and it is a quintessentially uh, Belgian beer uh, and a beer that comes from the region around Brussels. Um, and so it was really important for us to have this, uh, this beer that has a reflection of the flavors of the yeast that occurs naturally around the Brussels area um, to, uh, to be made in Brussels um, uh, and uh, for all the fans of BBP to be able to enjoy this uh, funky, uh, sour, uh, and uh, spontaneously fermented beer. Yeah, I mean, it is, I think it's important that you say that it is this sort of unique tradition from Brussels and from like farmland outside of Brussels. This is also, you guys are only, well, there's since been uh, one or two more breweries come online since you guys started brewing Lambic, um, brewing Lambic making goods. But you're only the second one to put out in goods of the type we're going to talk about. When we talk about the importance of the beer, never mind that it's celebrating the 10th birthday or it's the culmination of this project, but it is also the first beer of its kind that's been produced in a long time. But before we get on to talking about like history and, 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 and skirt over that, there's a bunch of different accents around the table. Yeah? Portuguese, Brazilian, English, American. I want to hear about your guys' first girls' experiences. Like when did you come to this beer? And when did you, I think more importantly, because sometimes it can be a bit strange of a beer to taste at first taste, when did you kind of lean towards being a fan or being passionate about making these beers? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I arrived in Brussels um, ooh, almost 15, so 14 years ago. Um, already, you know, quite interested in beer. I'd moved from um, Prague, from the Czech Republic, uh, and I had heard about this incredible brewery called Cantillon. Uh, so first thing I did, go down, spend two hours walking around, taste the beer, and I'm like, well, that was a waste of time. Uh, I had no idea what I was tasting. I'd never like, I'd never tried a spontaneous beer before. I'd never tried a lambic before. I don't think I really knew what lambic was, other than what I'd maybe read. Uh, but then I was like, you know, there's got to be something more to this. So I persisted and I persisted. Uh, I think until my taste buds adapted and I realized kind of what a wonderfully complex product and beer that uh, this was. So I think my, uh, yeah, let's say my love affair with Lambic and Gers definitely started in Cantillon and has since you know, expanded you know, to be living in the heartland of uh, Gers and traditional Lambic. And I've tried many, many more since. <laughs> but Cantillon, I would say, is definitely was the, the moment that I, I, I discovered Gers, let's say. Yeah. What about you, Jordan? Because you're coming from a bit further afield. Right. Uh, I'm from Austin, Texas. Um, and Not a place known for spontaneous from well actually we might get into that but historically yeah it's not known for these kinds of beers yeah true true um actually my first uh goes experience was on the porch of jester king um in uh probably the summer of 2011 although it could have been 2010 uh and uh someone had returned from a trip to brussels and brought back a bottle of cantillon goes um, and uh, I remember it being a, a ridiculously, ludicrously hot day, uh, and we split this uh, 75 centiliter bottle amongst uh, four or five of us, and uh, it was uh, something that was uh, uh, mind-bending, um, and uh, I had tried, I think, maybe one beer that was uh, quite uh, uh, funky and sour before that, but um, uh, this was something different, and... Uh, uh, definitely uh, changed the trajectory of everything that came after that. Well, yeah, because you ended up here. Yes. Yeah, so you can almost pinpoint it to that exact hot Texan porch. Is that an experience that is similar for you guys, Tiago, David, or like, did you find it? Did you find it when you came to Brussels, or did you, did you already know? No, it? I, I did find I didn't find it uh, in Portugal in the only craft beer bar that it was back in the days in, in my country. I was working for one of the first uh, craft breweries uh, in Portugal, and I think my first connection with the style or something similar to the style uh, was with uh, Boon Mariage Parfait, uh, which actually. Uh, when I think again and I do a flashback and when I think about goods and these kind of products being all about balance, I think Mariage Parfait was a perfect introduction for me uh, as a balanced product to not uh, make me run away with a huge amount of acidity that uh, you could find it somewhere in, in some of other lambic and uh, spontaneously fermented beer. Um, but more immersively uh, was Cantillon when I came to Belgium as a tourist. I was already in the brewer industry, so I, already, I was already a bit aware of what to expect, and I had a bit of, of the taste, uh, but the immersive, immersive experience was uh, doing the little tour at, uh, at Cantillon and try uh, Lambic Goes Creek uh, and get more passionate about uh, what was coming out of those uh, magical barrels. For me, it was Cantillon as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, first time in Brussels in 2010, it was... Um, visiting the Museum of Goose and, and discovering all these beers and then started collecting bottles and, and then also found out about Goose, uh, Bon Mariage Parfait, started 
um, collecting the each year. And it's funny that um, after 10 years in 2021, I did a tasting with my dad and my brother who are also brewers. And I, and I brought all the 10 bottles of a vertical of 10 years of Gusboma Yash Parfait and did a tasting with them. And that was a fun moment of, of all this. It also looked back at your, at your experience with, with Gus and beer and in general. How and did they find it? Yeah, uh, the old ones were not <laughs> good anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, that's the nature of the beer that we're talking about, isn't it? It can, I mean, of all the beers that are out there, it's one that can vary most widely from season to season, just purely by, by dint of how it's made. I mean, we've heard Bone, we've heard Cantillon. Dimmy, do you have a favorite Goose? That isn't one of those, or are you well, going to hew to the consensus? No, no, I really love Drifontaine, and uh, I think what they do is, uh, is still uh, today, uh, rest in peace, Armand, but uh, yeah, what they're still doing today is still amazing. And not even, you know, all the different kind of uses they make, but, but even beyond that, anything, uh, anything experimental they've been doing, and maybe they're tuning that down a bit because it gets very intense. I think, uh, yeah, they're definitely up there. They're, they're a bit pricey now, but, uh, yeah, I think uh, Drifontaine is still a, a really nice one to have. What about you guys when it comes to sort of the spectrum of gurzes that you enjoy drinking that maybe had an influence on the profile of, of the beers that you're making now? Do you lean towards more the tart side or the fruity side, the funky side, accessible? I mean, you've been drinking it for a long time now, so... Um, well, I like uh, gurz that has um, very particular um, identifiable house character, um, something that... Uh, you know, when you taste it, uh, you you know what it is uh, and where it comes from. I think that uh, bone definitely does that, um, and uh, that that very very soft acidity is super nice and very very enjoyable. I will drink one of those any day. Uh, but indeed, Drifontena as well. I think um, they have this graininess in their profile that's really beautiful, um, and uh, that's just lovely um, to be able to open up a bottle. Uh, and yeah, you have the seasonal differences and you have barrel barrel differences, but uh, you know generally what you're going to get. Um, and that's, uh, that's also really, really lovely when you, when you can find producers like that. You know, you, um, when you start drinking Lambic and Goose, the first thing you notice is the acidity, and it's, it's something to get used to. But over time, you realize more and more how much of a, you know, a, a bitter backbone can also really nice help balance that kind of beer. And, and that's something that I've come to appreciate more and more of the time that that's there as well, you know, because people are always talking about sour, 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 but sometimes when I try international beers are trying to recreate this, I think that sometimes it's something that's lacking is actually that bitterness that is quite distinguishable for certain, for certain cases. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because you talk about sourness and these beers have an acidic profile. That's sort of one of the things people talk about, but you, if you ever were to say to Frank Bone or Armand when he was around, when he was still alive, or even Jean, that his beers are sours. I think you would probably get a uh, firm slap on the wrist, metaphorical or otherwise, to say that's not true.
towards your own beers, the beers that you can make in here, and you can explain what we're drinking. You just popped a bottle of Rafa Lambic. Uh, one of you, all of you, I assume, are involved in the production of this. Maybe you can just tell a little bit about it. This was the first beer that came out December 2019, or 2021, back when the project was announced in public for the first time. So who wants to talk about this beer? Uh, Grappa Lambic, uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, one of the first beers, there were two that were released at the same time. Uh, this was 100% um, Lambic brewed in our very first Lambic season uh, that began in uh, January of 2020 and ended uh, sometime in April of that same year um, and actually did fermentation in um, uh, Cote de Rhone barrels and reworked Bordeaux barrels. Um, in a small uh, cellar affectionately known as the Spooky Basement. Um, and uh, this actually was where uh, the Lambic fermentation at BBP uh, began, um, and that was prior to the cellar that we're currently sitting in. Um, and so what happened was uh, we had to get our first season off the ground, um, and uh, we brewed uh, 10 batches that season, which was pretty amazing uh, to get into all of the barrels that we had down in that cellar. Uh, and then uh, the next Lambic season, we transferred all of the liquid from those barrels into grappa fooders. Uh, and so these grappa fooders are their uh, barrels of approximately 2,000 liters. Uh, and um, they're uh, from Italy, they were uh, disassembled in Italy, uh, shipped uh, to, um, to France uh, where they were reconditioned, uh, where uh, we had new hoops that were uh, built for them. Then um, these eight vessels were, were brought uh, from France here and reassembled uh, in December, um, gosh, was that December 2020? Wow, that was crazy. Anyway. Yeah, the pandemic has sort of totally mashed up my conception of time. Indeed. Yeah, this was peak pandemic, uh, and there was, uh, yeah, yeah, there was peak pandemic, and we were uh, uh, assembling all of the, the fooders down here. And uh, then uh, we had that lambic that was transferred from uh, five and 600 liter barrels into 2,000 liter fluters where then it aged for another uh, six months or so um, before uh, being bottled up into uh, these couple of bottles that we've opened here and that were part of our very first release. Uh, and so there is a very um, noticeable, there is a very present uh, grappa flavor to this uh, and that's actually uh, perhaps uh, a lot more oak character uh, as well uh, in this beer than you'd find in most Lambic forward beers as well. Why would that be? Uh, because of the double uh, barrel aging. Maybe just to rewind back to that first brew. I mean, at that time, David and I were still brewing three or four times a week clean beers upstairs. So lots of, I mean, all the regular pop-ups, IPAs, that kind of stuff. Um, but we'd done the research. We'd kind of translated the turbid mashing regime onto the, the Braucon system that we had, which is, of course, a two-vessel system, which is not, let's say, a traditional system for, for a turbid mash, but we'd translated it. We'd sourced our hops from Boone, yeah. I believe, from Frank, who was, uh, he was very supportive. At that time, Frank was still, uh, still in charge at, uh, at Boone. Um, he's now handed that over to his sons. Uh, so we had hops from Boone, um, but you know we designed and built the cool ship. So we had the cool ship, we had the lambic, we had the recipe. Sorry, we had the lambic recipe, turbid mash regime, 
Um, we implemented a few other things like mash hopping, et cetera, to, to maximize the amount of leaf hops that we got in there. But we didn't really know if it was going to work. I mean, <laughs> basically, you know, we knocked a hole in the wall, which I think is still there upstairs. And yeah, there's, there's pigeons, pigeons living in here. <laughs> <laughs> we knocked a hole in the wall so that we could, and added some fans so that we could get like a cross flow across the cool ship in the brewery. Uh, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say we were winging it. Like we had, we knew what we were doing, but we didn't know if it was going to work. Uh, and we put that stuff in barrels. And I remember coming back to it three, maybe four months later already. And the character was already like, super expressive and it was really I mean it was a real kind of wow moment like actually wow this is working I mean the research paid off of course we knew what we were doing but until you stick it in the barrels you don't know what's going to happen um, so no I mean like the context at the time was still it was a bit unknown and it, I mean if you rewind even further the sour project that we were calling it at the time was not super conceptually clear I mean we had lots of ideas there was mixed fermentation IPAs going into cans. Uh, I mean, it took a while to narrow down the concept, which is, of course, where Jordan came in. Um, Lambic isn't, of course, the only thing we produced in the program, but it became like a central, like the foundational pillar of that program. Um, so it was, yeah, I mean, a very different time. <laughs> uh, so to be drinking that now, uh, three years, three years, uh, three years later, um, it tastes great, by the way, uh, for those who are listening. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think that's interesting say there because this was a big departure for BBP you had had you done mixed firm beers before this so, I mean we had a barrel age program which I mean David can talk a little bit more about which we also inherited from one of the original brewers Eve um, so we had a barrel age program there was some mixed and spontaneous fermentation within it but uh, I mean, we never had a cool ship, but I mean, maybe you want to talk more about the... No, it was a, we, we had to run it a, a very clean operation still because we were doing uh, pop-ups and a lot of beers going into cans and there's a lot of risks associated to, uh, to uh, put those beers, uh, those clean beers in, in the cans when you have like a, a, spontaneously for a spontaneous environment for, for these kind of uh, lambic uh, beers. Uh, so it was more like a side program. We were packaging everything in a different... Uh, a different packaging line, everything by hand. Uh, so it was we tried to keep things separated as much as possible. Uh, but yes, there was a, a bit of mixed fermentation going on in barrels. We were pitching uh, some other cultures, uh, nothing spontaneously. Uh, but uh, yes, we we had some some of our products already on this category of mixed fermentation, but not so not on the spontaneous uh, fermentation. And beyond the sort of technical difficulties of making these beers while trying to keep a clean brewery, it was also a bit of a departure for BBP itself. I think in terms of the styles of beers and maybe what you guys were known for a little bit, which was a core range supplemented by seasonal range, supplemented by a weekly or monthly production of experimental beers, which followed either your particular preferences as brewers sometimes, and also where the market might have been at any particular moment in time. Uh, I won't get into the rainbow of various different beers that you guys produced over, over time, but it, there was a lot. Uh, some great, some I think you probably would admit maybe didn't work out as well as you'd hoped. Um, was it hard to get this project off the ground? Oh, I, I'd say yes and no. I mean, um, obviously, BBP was already looking into a new facility or finding a place for a new facility to, to brew all of our own clean beers. And, and, and this process had been going on since, you know, almost since this brewery opened, there was already a pathway to, to start looking for another place, which became Port Sud, which opened last year. 
uh, where Sam and David are brewing and, and Tiago as well. Um, but that also indeed the desire of the brewers and myself for this kind of beer with the heritage, with the flavor of this kind of beer, um, and, and obviously this space becoming, you know, th this space kind of started losing its potential. You know, all these pop-ups were made here, all these different kind of beers would move to this new brewery if they had to be clean. So it was, it was an easy, you know, thought of us to be like, hey, can we do this here? Because there's all this space and we would love to do that. Um, and we have an uh, empty brewery. And this, yes. This was a permit to shop at the time. But I mean, maybe to go back to the, the question, and I think Jordan can maybe speak a bit more about this. I mean, I think we were, we wanted to respect the traditions when it came to producing the liquid. Um, and, you know, the strategy was lambic, saison, and then sour red, which is kind of Flemish red, if you, or good brun kind of style of liquids. But the, all the creativity then came on the blending. And I think, you know, we'll try some more beers where then the blending gets quite much more, let's say, traditional BBP. Um, but, you know, like we looked back through the royal decrees from Belgium for, I believe, for Gers and for Lambic. Maybe it's just for Gers, uh, EU kind of um, regulations on what you can and can't call Gers. I mean, I think we never wanted to call the Gers Oudegers, which is protected, but also because that's not necessarily BBP. But if we wanted to, we could. You know, we respected all of those traditions in terms of process, uh, in terms of raw materials, uh, even went a bit further, actually, in raw materials. Um, but Jordan, I'll let you speak a bit more about that. We can get into the raw materials in a minute, but to speak about the engineers or these different blends, maybe that's a good opportunity to pop open a new bottle? Indeed. <laughs> what do you want to try, guys? Madeira or cider? Cider lambic. Yeah. Release number two. Release number two. Makes sense. All right, so while we're popping open and having a couple of glasses of a new bottle, which is the Cider Lambic, which was, along with the Grappa, the OG release back in 2021. Um, let's talk about why we're actually sitting down here now. It's sort of a, the beer that has been in the works almost since you started brewing, however many years ago it was. Um, I first heard about this when Sam messaged me when I was on my holidays and said, look, we have this festival coming up and there's a very important beer we're going to release. So who wants to talk to me about the Dance Art Gers? Uh, I mean, we knew we had to make Gers. Uh, if we were going to uh, start a new Lambic brewery in Brussels, this is a requirement. Absolutely. Had to do it. Um, and um, yeah, that, that was something that we knew from day one when we decided that Lambic was going to be made on this site, that there was going to be a new Gers in town. And, and this is it. 
Yeah. And one of the reasons why in the beginning we started with, without having the seller completely uh, ready for, for this was because we didn't want to lose the momentum. Uh, we wanted to make sure, okay, let's have Lambic since the first day that we can start to brew, even if the seller was not, is not completely ready, let's do it already. So it was 2020, right, when we brewed the first, the first, uh, the first uh, cool ship runs uh, in the so-called uh, spooky basements back in the days. Uh, but it was was uh, fundamental for us that we knew that we had to do goods and we cannot lose the, that year of uh, production. Because uh, we were also, also respecting temperature, we were also respecting uh, the effect of the winter and uh, the effect of the, the, the bacteria on, on, the, on, the, on the environment. Was there an idea already about like where you guys saw uh, Brussels Beer Project Goose fitting into the ecosystem of Goose's that was already there? And what I mean by, you know, we have quite a broad spectrum of flavors when it comes to goods that's produced in, in, in Belgium. It goes from the, you know, teeth enamel melting sour of certain brands to the, like we were talking about earlier on, the more accessible bone. Was there an idea already at the beginning that you had of we wanted to be somewhere here on that spectrum or was that something that you found out as the brewing seasons passed and the blending happened and the barrel aging kind of did its work? It's, um, it's interesting that we're, we don't come from a tradition of generations and generations. We didn't inherit a brewery from somebody else who taught all these uh, techniques. We, we do our research and we, we try to make um, something out of, out of nothing. We're, we're, um, how, many, how many breweries in Brussels were making Lambic with an American, a Portuguese, an Englishman and a Brazilian? So we, we had to do our research. We had to talk to other brewers and, and try to come up with this thing that we, we didn't know exactly how it would come out, but we had a good, uh, good hint at it, that we, that we had a good idea what we would uh, make. And, and then we learned with the, with the journey. This, this, um, it's, we, one thing you know is that we, we like the balanced and, uh, and uh, it goes with identity and we try to, uh, to uh, aim at that. And uh, the first one that's coming out um, has a lot of experimentation in it and a lot of learning curve in it. Yeah, and I mean, I think we knew, I mean, Jimmy, if we flashback six years, I mean, we knew that we wanted it to be also the first goes from Brussels for, I kind of lost count, I think at least like 50, 60 years. Um, so there was also the element of being the first to make, um, you know, to, to release a new goes from Brussels. Um, but I think we also did it sensitively. I mean, a along the way, we talked to, you know, talked to everyone. Uh, who was involved, uh, at, I mean, Cantillon, for example, Boone. Uh, we had a lot of discussions around. We didn't want to be treading on anyone's toes. Um, but then I think also the concept evolved in those three years as well. I mean, it's not just that it's uh, a new goes in Brussels that makes it unique. I mean, raw materials-wise, it's quite unique. Uh, we use um, regenerative Pilsner, which is now very um, popular, but at the time it was really... I mean, actually, it was the first malted batch from Cultivate, the cooperative that we now work with for our Pilsner and for our, uh, well, both Pilsner malt and Pilsner. Um, you know, the first delivery was just the back of a pickup truck in unlabeled bags of uh, customized malts that, you know, we'd, we'd customized that malt to specs that we had researched and read from um, brewing records and, and 
uh, actually, I can't remember where we found it, Petit Presseur, maybe. Anyway, um, you know, not to get too nerdy, but you know, so it's, it's, it's unique for those reasons as well. Um, Let's get nerdy then. <laughs> All right, so Agurs and Outgurs, even if that's not what it's called, it has been brewed to those specifications, is a beer that takes three years to make. Yeah? It has three years and a half. Thank you. This is why I, this is why I usually, I rarely talk on record to brewers. Um, because it is a blend of one, two, and three year lambics. It gets bottled and then re-fermented at least for another six months. Exactly. So the first brew, the beer, the oldest beer in this bottle that we're going to taste in a little bit was brewed way back in 2020. Yeah. Talk to me about, let's, let's walk through the beer one step at a time. So the grain bill, you said working with speciality or with small producers, was that really important for you guys in terms of where the, the grain was coming from, that it was Belgian, that it, was, that it had some sort of ecological credibility? Like, wh where did the ideas for that come from? Actually, it probably was uh, a contact from Sam uh, where we first learned about Cultivé. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is a, a Belgian cooperative of growers um, that uh, they all grow um, barley, uh, to a particular brewing specs with uh, around the Brussels region, uh, and we asked uh, if we could have uh, a batch that was malted to our own specifications, which was essentially uh, less modified than uh, we would uh, traditionally go for. So uh, what does that mean? In that means, uh, in basic terms, uh, you cook it a little less. Uh, and uh, this leaves behind uh, a more um, starchiness. Uh, it will allow uh, for a wort that is uh, a bit uh, richer. It's harder to brew. Um, and um, what we wanted there was uh, to give some uh, hard to ferment sugars for a very long spontaneous fermentation. Um, so that we could prolong that, um, so that uh, we wouldn't have everything that fermented out all at once. Um, and uh, the, the benefit being there that perhaps we could have something that was softer and rounder, um, and that uh, we could uh, enjoy uh, lambic and goose um, that, uh, that had a little bit of body to it, um, and perhaps even some head retention. Uh, which uh, was a, uh, a really hard target to shoot at, and I'm not sure that we've really even gotten there today, but we'll have to crack open a bottle and see how it goes. We'll find out. Yeah. So, I mean, an alambic is traditionally barley wheat. Did you, is it the same process? Uh, yeah, we, we have uh, uh, malted barley. That's that under-modified cultivé uh, malted barley. Uh, in addition, there's unmalted wheat, um, and uh, we were actually able to find a farmer locally uh, who has unmalted wheat, um, uh, and we add a small amount of oats uh, as well, which is an ingredient that's maybe uh, not uh, common for most Lambic brewers, um, but it's something, again, that we thought would uh, add a little bit of, uh, of roundness, of graininess, uh, of some added um, uh, interest, um, and that roundness, uh, kind of pillowiness that you can find in uh, some really nice, uh, uh, soft 
Landvik and Kurt Spears. And something yeah. that was historically also a bit more present. Uh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I mean, uh, it, it's not like we're being heretics. Like if you if you look back a hundred years, I mean, people were throwing whatever they could get cheap on the market. You know, it was quite often rye. There was oats as well. Um, so it wasn't. Yeah, uh, let's say it was wasn't a new idea, but I mean, we wanted to put it in there. Uh, and I think that's still respected um, traditional kind of lambic uh, production. But you know, we then tried very hard and failed initially to run that through the turbid mashing process, which was like really hard work. Uh, got there in the end, you know, fine-tuned that over time. Um, but then, of course, you need to have the aged hops. Uh, and you know, we were coming to this program we didn't have, we do now, we didn't have at the time a hop aging program. Um, so of course we needed to reach out, which is where Frank Boone became, you know, super helpful. You know, he could provide us with leaf hops that he'd been aging for five or six years. Um, so then, you know, that adds like a whole another layer of character. And then on top of that, uh, we respected initially the three-hour boil, right? Remind me. It's, been uh, a <laughs> it's perhaps that we did do some very long boils initially. Uh, yes, uh, but we did not continue extremely long boils, uh, given that our kettle was quite efficient. Um, that is something that, when I was writing the notes ahead of this about talking to you, I was like, okay, we're gonna talk grain, we're gonna talk yeast, we're gonna talk fermentation, barrels. Hops is an under, I think, underrepresented or under-discussed aspect of this. Somebody explained to me, Sam talks about aged hops that are maybe five or six years old. That might seem bizarre for people who have even the smallest knowledge about brewing. What is it about aged hops that makes, that are so important for Lambic? Yeah, don't say that to any IPA brewer. You're going <laughs> to shiver, like, uh, <laughs> what are you guys doing? You, you need to age the hops because you want those alpha acids that cause the um, assertive bitterness on on a, on a regular beer, you want those alpha acids to be gone, and they they do oxidize with time, and they, you get left with the, the the properties of hops that keep the beer from bacterial infections. But you you want to have, keep the good bacteria. I mean, the Lactobacillus and the Pediococcus. You want to keep it, but you want the bad bacteria, the like the Enterobacteria. You want it out. So you're gonna try to protect the beer, but not make it um, to keep the good bacteria. Uh, in. Like almost, almost like, a, like a probiotic. Um. Yeah, so just to add, I, re I remember when we started to talk about uh, old ops, like I was contacting some suppliers like, uh, and just asking them, like, uh, what is the oldest ops you have in storage? And it's like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> we just want them all, please. Yeah. And we found some hops from t like 2016 um, that we, we brewed with. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were actually adding a, a cascade leaf uh, into our mash uh, from 2016 um, that uh, was uh, nicely oxidized. Additionally, there was a, uh, a hop miracle that happened. Um, and uh, this is when we were cleaning out um, uh, a stock room and behind a shelf found uh, old bags of hops that had been opened in many cases and were just beautifully oxidized. Um, and uh, so the, the, bre the previous brewers that, that worked here, uh, they must have known that someday we needed aged hops because they left us some gold uh, that we used in um, the second and third and uh, 
there are probably still some of those hops around today uh, uh, here in the brewery for was future a, uh, <laughs> uh, seasons. Landwick made with hops that we found behind the fridge. Yeah, I have to say I've got some I've I've, I've got some aged hops. In, in my in my basement that I used to use as, as demonstration hops during workshops, I might just drop oh yeah, bring them. I'll, I'll, I'll drop them in at some point. There's some mosaic in there uh, and a couple of other hops. Um, all right, but the main event when it comes to lambic, I think, is the thing you can't avoid is the yeast. So talk to me about the BBP house culture or spontaneous yeast inoculation that takes place in here. Yeah, I mean, um, there's there's yeast all around us. It's on many many things, um, and we were not sure what we were going to get when we started out. Uh, and uh, when we first tasted uh, some of the lambics after that that initial uh, season, we tried some things that tasted like um, uh, hefeweizen that had a severe Brett infection. Uh, and so we're uh, talking pineapple and bubblegum. Yeah, and like with a, a big uh, side of like ham sandwich. Uh, and uh, there, were, there were some, some really interesting barrels uh, and uh, we clearly saw like an alcoholic fermentation that happened initially um, with uh, like a Brett funk that was, uh, that was definitely uh, coming on after just a couple of months in the barrel. Um, and then we saw acidification um, that started happening after that. And this was really uh, the hope, um, was that uh, we could have um, the bacterial fermentation that happens last. Um, and that is so that we can restrain the acidity um, and so that we could have really nice development of flavors um, and that we could also have uh, a really healthy uh, fermentation. Um, so those those microbes were coming from air inoculation yes. and barrel inoculation, perhaps. because perhaps okay because I think it's there's one of these sort of urban legends that people uh, especially beer writers because it's very romantic um, when we talk about new spontaneous fermentation breweries that they go and they buy their wort or their fermented beer from somebody else who's also making that beer and they hose the walls down and then that gives them this beautiful microflora. But in reality, what is actually happening is it's just you're just brewing the beer, you're cooling it down, you're putting it into the barrels, you're crossing your fingers, and you're hoping that the bugs that live in the cellar that we're speaking in right now are bugs that can do the job. Indeed, yes. And uh, we also uh, later on did some historical uh, looking around, and Tiago found that it's possible that there was even Lambic that was brewed in this cellar or nearby. And there was certainly Lambic that was brewed up and down the canal all around here. Um, so we knew that this area can make Lambic. It hadn't been done in a while over here, but Cantillon is also not that far away. Um, so, uh, you know, there was um, uh, an idea that uh, it could be done, um, but we weren't certain really what existed all around us in this particular space. Um, and in the very first season, I think that the inoculation was quite uh, organic uh, in, in this really like romantic way. Um, but in subsequent seasons, uh, I think you're right, like the inoculation from barrels is uh, like not to be underestimated. Um, and we were really happy with uh, many, many barrels and fooders that we did fermentation in, and we were 
like extremely happy to see fermentation happen again in those same vessels um, and to have an idea of where those were headed once again. Uh, and that's, that's really cool to be able to build in uh, a little bit of consistency and um, uh, even if uh, things don't work out the way you think they will. Uh, because that's certainly almost always the case. Year three or year four, whatever year we are in now, um, brewing season. Brewing season will start in October, I guess. October, November. November. The brewing and the fermentation, the yeast is becoming a bit more predictable, I guess, at this point. You kind of have a sense of what's coming out of the yeah. barrels. Oh, well, you see, at this point, um, the, the temperature really makes a difference when, you, when you're brewing Lambic because it, well, the presence of bacteria and yeast in the air is, it varies a lot uh, between summer and winter. And summer you have more bacteria than yeast in the air, and then winter you have more yeast. And so there is a component from the air, and there is a component from the barrel, there's a component from the cellar, always going to be a, a bit of, of each one. We try to go as cold as uh, the nights are under 5 degrees, and we have a, a good temperature to start. Is that, uh, that's a question I wanted to ask later, but I'll ask now. Is that becoming more difficult? We've had some pretty hot summers. This summer has been less hot. It's been very wet. Um, but, for example, I remember last summer, the summer before, we were hitting late 30s. I think we might have even hit 40 degrees at one point. Yeah, make sure your cellar is not too hot. <laughs> do you guys, do you guys uh, uh, climate control to an extent, or is it sort of we let, because we are underground, the temperatures will be lower, we can let it go, but intervene. If you have a, a, good, uh, a good cellar, I mean, a good cellar means that uh, there's no big variation. Um, on a, a week that in summer that gets to 35 degrees outside, we, we notice our cellar can get to 25, 26 degrees. That's not ideal. And right now, today we had what? We had around 25 degrees uh, outside, but our cellar stays at 21. But we, no we noticed that when we used to have barrels upstairs, when we were not doing uh, spontaneous fermentation, that some barrels that were like more in contact with uh, more extreme temperatures and bigger variations, they were not performing as well. Closer as to the ceiling exactly. versus yeah. closer to the floor. So luckily the, the, the cellar uh, is, is, is very nice, very, very uh, constant during, during all, all year, so yeah. One last question before we crack open the beer because I'm getting thirsty now. Um, talk about challenges. And we talk about legacy, Tiago, you mentioned starting from nothing. You know, Cantillon, which is a name that has repeated itself many times, has been brewing for since the 1930s. Bone, which we talked about, has been brewing for almost four decades, if not more. What were the big obstacles that you guys came across in brewing? And we can talk about processes. I heard stuck mash tons, which we can, I mean, maybe that's just the raw ingredients or stinky barrels or... Having Whatever. to dump a barrel. Yeah. Many, well, so I was, that was one of my Having questions. Having to dump a few barrels. I was just going to say, you must have dumped some bad beer at a certain point. Yeah, some. some uh. No, I mean, uh, I mean, to talk maybe on process, I mean, the initial challenges were adapting 
like I said, turbid mashing regime uh, and whole leaf like aged hops to a system that wasn't designed for it. Uh, that was tough. Uh, there was just learning how to use all of the equipment that we had, um, which wasn't designed for lambic production, you know, kind of bypassing heat exchanges, um, kind of eyeballing volumes on uh, on the cool ship. You know, we uh, we wanted to respect kind of the Plato's that are, uh, I think, regulated. Was it tw is it 12.8, 12.9? Remind me, one of the two, 12.8, 12.9. Um, but we had no idea how much evaporation we were going to get in cool ships. Uh, working out how to optimize volumes in the barrels because the first brews after all the evaporation left us with 700, 800 liters. You know, we were experiencing like lots more evaporation than we expected. I mean, personally had never brewed anything where we'd boiled it for three hours and left it overnight to cool. So like didn't really know what was gonna happen. Um, I mean, like there was process challenges. I mean, there was also just conceptual challenges, uh, <laughs> but that's maybe reversing even further. But uh, no, I mean, then, then as soon as you start hitting barrels, it gets even more complex. So. We also had like a lot of simultaneous operations going on in the early days where we had uh, brew days upstairs where we were also packaging. Uh, and in a tight little brewery, that uh, can be not a whole lot of fun. We had days where we were transferring from uh, cool ship upstairs while we were doing other clean transfers and brewing at the same time, uh, trying to make sure that we had uh, enough pumps and hoses and little pieces of equipment. Uh, and then on top of all that, we built out an entirely new cellar in the midst of COVID. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we had COVID on top of all of the start of the, the beginning of all of this. And uh, that was a really big unexpected challenge as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we had to turn what was a furniture store uh, into uh, this beautiful cellar here. Uh, and that was uh, certainly really, really tough. No, and at the same time, the foundations for Port Sud, the new brewery were being, I mean, they were laid in well, early 2021 with the first kind of structural pillars going in in May 2021. Um, with of course, like a whole new team of brewers to help us operate that brewery arriving in September, October, November of the same year. So, I mean, there was a lot going on, uh, so. <laughs> there were personnel changes for lots of different reasons. Um, you know, the, the new production facility up and running over there and moving bodies around and people uh, with all different kinds of roles. Um, and it took quite a long time before things uh, got into anything looking like a rhythm. Uh, and that was a bit chaotic uh, and we made it work somehow. But about the challenge that I always remember as well, like going back in the conversation, uh, also where we are, it's super challenging to put uh, these massive fooders in here. And I think all of the structural uh, complexity of having uh, uh, the, 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 just the ground underneath of just sand. So that we had to have a structural engineer to, to uh, help us to have the right, uh, the right floor, uh, explaining to us that, okay, you need to put these tiles that are super expensive uh, because structurally they are way better than just putting a epoxy uh, layer on yeah. the floor. Uh, also the, the massive challenge during COVID of, of having a team of coopers just uh, assembling all of, the, of, all, of the, all of the fooders piece by piece, I think was, I mean, there, there are so many challenges that we had just before we started and during we started at least quite uh, nostalgic to, to think about it and uh, 
I'm very proud with that, all we all achieved. It's, uh, yeah, it's I mean, impressive. even just talking about the barrels, like for anyone who doesn't, who hasn't been down to the cellar, there's one small person-shaped door at one end. There's a glass door at the other end, which leads to upstairs. But another tiny door. I mean, we're not talking. There's no space to bring anything in here, and I mean. If you look at a fooder, a fooder is the size of a person, a tall person, six foot, seven foot tall. Yeah, yeah hence, hence the reason all of those were disassembled, stave by stave numbered, so you put them back in the right order. Yeah. So when you put them back together, they don't leak, which there was challenges on that yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> crack open a beer then I think it's time we uh, had a taste of this beer we've been talking about for so long somebody talk who wants to take the lead in talking about the dance art because let's just talk profiles well, I think me and Sam we step up a bit a bit from from these but we let we let the magi magicians talk, <laughs> talk about it yeah I mean we had uh, a few blending sessions um, you know we started by how do you not have any? What what happened here? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we had a few we had a few tasting sessions where we um, tasted through every barrel of lambic in the building, um, and uh, then we kind of broke things down, decided. We think that these barrels might be better for uh, certain blends with grapes or other fruit that we know is coming or blends that we knew uh, were on the way. Uh, and this was kind of an ongoing tasting exercise that um, Tiago and Dimitri and Max Field and myself uh, were actively um, engaging in on a pretty regular basis. Um, and. We knew that we had to uh, put some things aside for goods along the way. Uh, and so uh, from the very first year, we, know, we knew that we had to set aside some liquid. And so this was something that kind of uh, got shaped as we moved forward uh, as a brewery. And really, um, things got a lot more real when we all sat down and uh, we started experimenting with blends of barrels. And we did this a few times to think about the different kinds of blends uh, that were possible. And we ended up with three different blends of goods. And uh, maybe, Tiago, you want to say something about uh, the blends and the process? Yeah, I think we're, um, what's interesting here is that we tried to to learn from three different proportions because the first time we do it we we needed to check um to do three different things and see what we like the most what gets more carbonation after refermentation we also tried to figure out what would be the final gravity after refermentation in the bottle because that's that is something that you find out after um learning how to work with your own lambic that is, each brewery has its has a different final gravity because they, they have a different process 
um, even though they're they're all making lambic, they, each brewery has its own character, own uh, microflora, and different turbid mesh, and that also affects the final gravity. So that's that's why we did three different blends with different proportions, and and I think we're, we have quite um, interesting tasting right now. So how much do those three blends different d uh, differentiate between each other? So we talk about three different blends. Well, the, the, the three-year-old proportion is the same because obviously that's the first year we brewed. We only had 10 brews in. We had to put some of that aside as well. And so you got some really nice lambic that you, you keep for the future. Um, so yeah, the oldest proportion, which is, it, is the, the, the smallest proportion, I think we're somewhere between uh, you know, around 10% in all of the three blends is the same fooder. The same grappa fooder. Uh, with, with a small difference, yeah. One has like 8%, the other one yeah. has 13%. Yeah. And then as we started brewing more lambic in the second and the third year, we started to have more options for these blends. So that also meant that that's when we could start to play around a bit more. And you know, like the three-year-old is probably your most complex. The two-year-old uh, can also shape that identity. So there we could play around in those three blends a little bit more. And then the bulk is coming from the one-year-old. Um, that's still giving a bit of sugar as well. Um, but yeah, so the two-year-old actually is probably almost the most determining factor with the one-year-old um, to those three different blends. And how does that translate then into all this talk about final, uh, final gravities and blends and everything? For, for, for a layman, even like myself, sometimes I get confused. How does that translate into flavor profiles of either across or the different blends like how much how much will they say you pick up a bottle of one year uh, 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 blend one versus blend three are you going to experience a significant difference or are those beers similar enough to the average drinker that it's only you guys in this room who would be able to recognize the difference I definitely think that um, from blend to blend there are going to be uh, goods drinkers that can tell a difference. Um, and I'm not going to pretend like all three are exactly the same because, um, you know, none of us are Pierre Tilquin. And absolutely, uh, the, the oldest proportion of that, that blend, that three-year-old Lambic, uh, has um, kind of the most angular acidity, uh, has also probably the most barrel character um, and it has um, some uh, oxidative characteristics as well. So uh, it's some really beautiful stuff to drink, um, but uh, I think that for the average goods drinker, a bottle of three-year-old uh, Lambic on its own would probably not be their most favorite thing to consume. Um, and so it really needs to be balanced out with um, some two-year-old, which kind of has elements of uh, a one and, and three-year-old. Um, and uh, so it it's, has a acidity that's been softened a little bit, but it doesn't yet have the oxidative characteristics of a three-year-old. Uh, our two-year-old also doesn't have the barrel characteristics that our three-year-old has. And the one-year-old stuff has a little bit of residual um, uh, sugar in it. Um, it has uh, acidity that uh, is not angular um, like the three-year-old, um, but it's young acidity. And um, 
the uh, sugars that are left behind uh, in the one-year-old definitely affect uh, the refermentation in the bottle. And it was something that we had to take into consideration when creating these blends of the three different components. Uh, we're also uh, looking around in the cellar at uh, sizes of barrels also, because you can talk a lot about years, um, and uh, our three-year-old uh, Lambic was all double-aged, um, so just by, by the fact of circumstances of starting the program where we had uh, the, smooky, the spooky uh, uh, basement in effect, uh, and we had um, these rework Bordeaux barrels and uh, Cote de Rhone barrels that we started with, and then that liquid went into the grappa fooders. That was a life for every drop of the first lambic that was brewed uh, here. But um, after that, in the seasons that followed, lambic went in and did fermentation in those same uh, grappa fooders, but it also did fermentation in 600 liter barrels, 500 liter barrels, and 225 liter barrels. And uh, the size of the barrels and the different kinds of barrels also had a major influence on the flavors that were generated later on. Uh, and we saw that um, even one-year-old Lambic that was in a 225-liter barrel may have uh, an age uh, in the flavor of it, in the taste of it, that was more similar to what a two-year-old Lambic would taste like in a 600-liter barrel. Uh, so. Um, there is, there's so many factors going on in here that uh, it's really fun to taste all the different things, um, but it also can be really overwhelming um, if, uh, um, if you don't stop and slow down and think about each, how each element affects every other element. Yeah. So you take all of that. Yeah. Oh, no, it's <clears throat> and what we're trying now is uh, batch one or batch three? Batch one. This is batch one, okay. And is there also a difference between one, two, and three? Or yes. Is, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So I was gonna say, maybe we should crack the three. Crack the three. <laughs> and so you get all of that. Right, all that work, all that dedication, three years, put it all in a blender, and you mix it up, and it comes out with the beer. Can you, is, it's a, a question I guess is, what is the Brussels Beer Project Dance Articures? Like, what is the profile? Where does it where does it end up on the spectrum? Oof. <laughs> uh, I think that this might Effer be I think effervescent. I think we could probably go with effervescent. Um, where does it end up? Where has it ended up on the spectrum? This first blend. This first. Uh, we're gonna throw that one right back at you because I think that Owen, you've had a lot of goods in your day, uh, and I'm really curious. Um, just as a as a beer drinker, I know that you know usually you're putting all of us in a hot seat, but I think it's your turn. Um, and uh, you know, drinking goods is really about. Um, uh, your own experience with a liquid. And uh, every producer can tell you their story about how they make it and uh, what they think it's like. Um, but it's really up to you uh, to decide what your experience is. I'm going to demur on that question. Oh. Yeah, I know. I've learned with hard experience that I really don't like talking about a brewer's beer in front of them. I'll just shit talk about it behind their backs. Um, well, you, you can you can you can say just on my side. <laughs> but it's I mean, what I'm interested in is 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 the different so batch one versus batch three. That sort of is there enough of a difference or uh, less of a difference where you can say that 
there's a BBP house style. Ah, house style. Sort that's of. A, that's a tough question. But I mean, emerging. you can see the difference between this one and the first one. This one is like a bit more vibrant. Yeah. Like slightly darker in color. Maybe that's just I have the end of another bottle. I think we went very open-minded into the blending of these these three first Geuses, also because we knew if we would aim for three quite different profiles, uh, mostly based on those two and three-year-old, uh, two and one-year-old uh, Lambic that we would put in, that we would learn the most from it. And I think all along, you know, tasting through those 80 barrels, determining which one we had to dump, which one we would keep to, to put fruit into, was because for us, this is just the beginning of a journey. You know, all these Lambic brewers have the experience from blending for many, many decades, mostly, uh, except for all the new, the, the new kids on the block. And I think that's where those three blends are obviously, oh, that's a nice one. Um, that's where, obviously, there's a proportion that's very determined, but we just wanted to keep things open to see also how they evolved in the bottle. You know, trying them as we were blending to today, um, you know, just before release, is completely different. So we, we, we could kind of think where things were going to head, also based on how you're bottling and you don't want too much oxygen and all that stuff. Again, this is only the beginning of, of us seeing which one of these three do we like best today in one year and how will that affect our way of blending and maybe even go back to raw materials and processes, you know. So, yes, I don't think there's a, there's a house character completely yet because... Can you do that after your first three blends? I don't think so, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is just the start of a, a longer journey. I mean, I think that there are definitely some flavors that you can find um, that are similar from barrel to barrel when you start tasting around in the cellar here, uh, as we did prior to blending uh, this goods. And so uh, there's, um, a very particular honey-like flavor um, that I was able to identify in many, many different uh, barrels uh, that I think is also present in the goods itself. Um, and uh, I, I find it quite pleasant. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, the acidity is uh, fairly similar from blend to blend as well. Um, and so uh, there, there are similarities there. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, over time how the blends uh, either change or stay the same uh, and what will be the, the future uh, as um, uh, Lambic continues to come together in this space. We need to constantly um, put ourselves next to other brewers of Giz and we, we try to compare and, and have a reference and then we we try to taste what we have and try to direct it uh, for the next blend um, and that's the future right where, when we're gonna be end of this year we start uh, all this process again and we start making uh, goods 2023 um, out with all this learning from from the current blend that's the way the process works there's beer in the barrels around us that is already uh, bookmarked for because 2024 or whenever the next 
blend will be or whenever the next release will be i guess exactly yeah we um, we leave a certain amount that we that we calculate to be for this year this year's blend next year's blend in two years three years time blend and that's going to be um, used as as a material in this, this these blending sessions they are endless and <laughs> because you got to go through all the, these barrels every single one take notes and each one has a different opinion as well and we have to take all of that into account yeah I, I, that was a question i suppose i wanted to ask as well what has the reaction been internally both I mean, you guys here in the Dance Art Brewery have been very focused on blending and getting it right and the brewing. Port Sud is obviously down the road. What has the reaction internally been to this first batch? Like, have you gotten any feedback? I mean, obviously, people aren't going to tell you that it's rubbish, but, like, I mean, you know, this is an important, an important moment for the brewery and for this particular brewery installation as well. I mean, I think we're all equally excited to release this to the world um, for Wanderlust, our 10th anniversary. Slight plug here, 9th and 10th of September uh, in the usual usual time and place. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I can speak for myself, uh, really proud to have been part of this uh, two years ago, two and three years ago. Uh, I mean, very, very happy with it. And I think, uh, uh, I mean, actually not so many people have tried it yet. Um, you know, so this is actually the first time I've tried the first and third batch. I've tried the second batch in between. There's actually, there's even brewers at Port Sud who have not tried it yet. So, um, I mean, it's only just coming out of conditioning um, for some batches. It's been how long? Seven, eight months? Uh, yeah, well, we started uh, bottling in December. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So it's only just coming back from conditioning for us to test it. So actually, I mean, you're, it's exclusive tasting uh, so uh, indeed I mean actually there are a lot of members of the team who have not tried it yet um, but Jordan Tiago Dimitri did a lot of I mean actually even David and I uh, a bit longer ago did a lot of work kind of training a lot of the team uh, at the Brussels beer project uh, both flavor wise sensory wise but also on what exactly Lambic and Gers is um, I think they're going to be happy talked a lot about process, production, techniques, raw ingredients. Let's talk a little bit about the name. Uh, it's called Tansartikos. It's not called Artikos. And we touched on this ever so slightly earlier on. Explain to me why it's not called an Artikos if it is made to the quite strict specifications of an Artikos. I think we want to bring bring it to the to the world as something new not something old our our public is is looking for something new don't need to be attached to the old and it's it comes from a long time ago and it has a future as well you know and i think also that you know <clears throat> maybe the bbb crowd doesn't you know doesn't understand the, you know, why is there odor? Why is there new? Why is there, you know, why is there a need to put old on that? And it's just curious. And I wish, you know, like natural wine could just be wine. You know, th there's no need to 
you know, it's like we we effed things up making these kind of products over time, you know, by adding sugar at packaging and, and, and pasteurizing. So it could go to a wider crowd, I think. We just want to showcase what, what the product is. Yes, indeed, we follow the rules to, to make it an eau de geus, but, you know, we, we just do our own thing, and, and that's why we, we put this is our geus from Dansart. Whether it's out or not, you can do the research, you can ask us, um, but there's no need for us to put that on the label. That kind of leads me on to another question, and we, uh, sort of looking towards the future. What do you guys think, because you're not the only ones who have started brewing and blending again. We've seen over the past five years, slightly longer. What, at least in Brussels and Belgian terms, announced to almost an explosion in Lambic production relative to what it used to be like when I moved to Brussels and probably when a few of you moved to Brussels as well. How do you, what, what's your take on the sort of revival that we've seen with new brewers, new blenders? Awesome. Uh, if, if I think to the other most recent um, Gers release, Deville, it's a fantastic Gers. Uh, and I mean, my hope is that um, the Brussels Beer Project can do what they do well, which is really popularize or repopularize in this case um, a style, Gers and Lambic. Uh, I think we can help kind of drive that. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic beer. It's a, fantastic style like I hope that we can kind of be the driving force that brings that back to Brussels because indeed when I moved here 14 years ago it was near impossible to drink anything other than Boone from a night shop um, so uh, my hope is that we can be a driving force to do that and uh, more the merrier I mean I think there's some there's some really good new blends out there we don't make a fraction of what they make. Huh? We, we, we make very little. We try to do that, yeah. Ah, but, ah yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I'm talking more, uh, not in terms of volume, but in terms of yeah, perception. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so so I'm just, the, the headline takeaway from that is uh, BBP Dansarka is in your nearest night shop. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I go I, I for in, every in, night shop. In the window. I think, yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a good point on which maybe to either... Pop open a new bottle or just crack on and have a conversation about sort of what comes next? Uh, we can do both. <laughs> I see plenty of full glasses, actually. I mean, we will just, should we just crack on and I mean, maybe we I think can. Oh, Owen needs to go home and not have another beer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm fully, fully compass mentis. I mean, just the, uh, I mean, moving forward, I mean, I'll let Tiago talk more about the, the, the program. I mean, of course, like the last few years have been also very very difficult uh, you know like uh, covid was challenging enough but then of course there was the kind of perfect storm of inflation war climate change all those various things that made it quite difficult to be a brewery in general um, so the Donsa program has gone from a very very broad uh, very very broad kind of um, spontaneous and mixed fermentation program to a bit more narrow uh, but Still, this encompasses uh, Lambic and Gers as kind of core, I mean, effectively, like the all-stars of the Dansar program. Um, but there is still very, very much space for experimentation. Uh, and I think what Tiago is pouring now is the Madeira Lambic. So again, this is kind of where I think the Lambic becomes very, very much BBP. Um, you know, either using different barrels, but I mean, Jordan, jump in. I mean, different barrels, different, um, different fruits, different, I mean, forage products also. Uh, I mean, actually, maybe, Jordan, you want to talk about some of the other, let's say, kind of um, what we were, let's say, all-stars for the terminology for the BBP crowd, the core range that will be coming out of the Dansar program. 
um, beers that have already been released, like Time Machine, uh, which is a fantastic rhubarb uh, kind of Saison Lambic blend. Um, but anyway, I, I passed the... Uh, passed the bottom of this. Um, yeah, we also have a, a blend of uh, uh, Lambic and Saison called Saison Lambic. Uh, uh, a, slightly, a slightly more traditional approach yeah. to naming, just call it what it is. Yeah. Yes. Is, is that a BBP beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, it, it doesn't sound uh, like uh, a BBB, BBP beer. Um, uh, certainly not one that you could have imagined, uh, let's say, four or five years ago here. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, available in 37.5 CL bottles. Um, and um, yeah, there are quite a few blends of Lambic and other things that are not necessarily uh, all-star uh, Dansaf beers that are still uh, TB released. Uh, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I'm looking at the fridge behind me. I mean, we should also crack open Go West Red Sally, uh, which is a you know, very, very good sour red or interpretation of a sour red with uh, sage. Um, I mean, the Madeira Lambic that you're trying now, if, if you've tried it, I mean, the, the Madeira character is insane. Uh, and I think people will really, really appreciate that. I don't remember. Is it released? It's not released. Yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah. Coming soon. Uh, <laughs> Madeira Lambic. Um, I mean, we even blended really like the, <laughs> the original Saison Lambic was indeed even Delta Lambic. Uh, we blended uh, a brew of Delta. Uh, there's one in the fridge. Fantastic. Delta with uh, Lambic for the BXL Beer Fest. But... That's it. It's, I mean, it's, there's some smoked flashpoint, maybe. Yeah, we did a collaboration with uh, Freigeist um, that's, uh, yeah, spontaneously fermented um, uh, smoked beer. Uh, and uh, that one also has uh, some um, gooseberries in it. And so that one's uh, an interesting one that will eventually someday go out into the world. And there's, um, Continental Plates Collide, a collaboration with Atutet from Switzerland um, that is uh, a blend of all of the base beers from Dansach. Uh, so that is Lambic and Saison and Sour Red uh, with habaneros and peaches uh, will eventually come out. So there are many, many things. Ah, oh, at Wonderlust. Be there, be square. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Oh, it's just important to mention that we, during this journey of getting into Lambic, we also um, brewed mixed fermentation beers with our own Dansat mixed culture. That is because we we decided to go for um, for um, saisons, sour reds, and and Lambic, and we would have all of that in barrels at the same time. But the saisons and sour reds were fermented with our own mixed culture. And they were put in barrels. And then uh, many times we did blends of lambic and mixed fermentation saisons and sour reds. Yeah. And I mean, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm getting is, is that there is still, okay, belts have been tightened somewhat. Minds have been focused a little bit by the overlapping omni-crisis that we've been kind of going through since 2020. But there is still an opportunity for you to experiment within the strictures that you now have continue to mix and match and blend and collaborate with other people on making interesting beers yes. <laughs> there's also something I wanted to I mean there's, there's an important thing as well is that for two of you at this table this is sort of a valedictory beer because Jordan you have recently left the brewery 
And Dimitri, you are leaving as of, I guess, 5 p.m. on Sunday of Wanderlust. So how does, Jordan, I mean, like, how does that feel to you as both a culmination but also a bit of a full stop on your BBP adventure? Well, um, I'm, I feel incredibly lucky that I was able to come to Brussels and come to Belgium to uh, brew Lambic here. That's something that uh, it's just an incredible opportunity that uh, I never thought in my lifetime that I would have a chance to do. And um, the beer that I've been able to make with everybody sitting around the table here, uh, I couldn't be prouder of all the work that we've done together. And uh, it's really, really spectacular. Um, yeah, indeed, it's, uh, it's bittersweet in that, um, uh, you know, I'm departing the, the company that we have here. Uh, but I knew that someday I would also be going out on my own and starting my own company uh, and, uh, and making delicious beers. Um, uh, on my own, and so I have a, a blendery that's in the works called Rattle Rattle, uh, that uh, products will be uh, out in the market if all goes well uh, next year. And uh, so that's uh, really exciting, and I'm uh, pushing forward on all of that. And if this, uh, this big story here at BBP and the Lambic made at Dansar hadn't happened, uh, I never would have been able to do that, which is uh, pretty incredible. Um, and. Uh, it really, uh, time has compressed in a, in a way that uh, um, is so surprising and it really, uh, it seems like yesterday that we were, uh, you know, cutting a hole in the wall uh, to let the night air in for the Lambic, uh, where we were uh, banging together these fooders down here in this cellar um, and, uh, you know, the, the first uh, blends and transfers, it seemed like a goods was a faraway dream, and today we have it in bottles in front of us, and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but there's gonna be many, many more amazing beers uh, that we'll all get to sit uh, in front of us. Uh, and uh, Brussels is gonna be, uh, and is an amazing place for these kinds of beers, and will remain so. And I believe very strongly uh, in spontaneous fermentation, in Lambic, and in beers uh, that have uh, this kind of local spirit uh, to them. Uh, and I'm really excited to continue to be a part of that and uh, to maintain my ties with all of you lovely people around the table here and all of you thirsty beer drinkers out there in the world listening to this. Um, and uh, when I see you next, I'd be happy to buy the next one. Have me in tears, Jordan. Um, and Dimmy, for you, your journey with BBP has been a little bit longer. I mean, you started 2014, 2015? 2015, yeah. Eight so years, it's been so. eight years. Yeah. Um, it must be nice to be able to bring it to a conclusion with something, I guess, even back then, 2015, was still, as Jordan says, a bit of a pipe dream for the brewery, probably something that wasn't even on your radar at that point. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been... Yeah, eight, eight great years. Um, lots of lots of really cool experiences. Seeing this uh, this company and this team grow. Indeed, like having no clue in 2015 that we were going to make curse. Absolutely not. That was definitely not in the plan. Um, and I think maybe I'm still underestimating that we actually made this and this is going to go out in the world and and to to see people's reaction actually drinking this. You know, 
Um, but yeah, it's it's from for myself. It's just time for something else, you know. Um, uh, I got a young son and uh, put stuff in perspective. Um, you know, I don't know what's next, but that's also fine. Take take a bit of time to uh, to settle in and uh, and and use all the skills that I uh, build up here to yeah to work somewhere else. Um, on that, as Jordan said, slightly bittersweet, maybe melancholic, which I think is normally the tone of most Brussels Beer City articles. To be honest, um, <laughs> who's going to tell me? where this beer is coming out, when it's coming out, how they can get their hands on it. Oh, it will definitely be at Wanderlust, that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, Wanderlust, 10th anniversary, birthday party, beer festival. Dimi's Last Dance. Dimi's Last Dance. When and where? Vismet, uh, Marché au Poisson, 9th and 10th of September. And uh, yeah, 56 different beers. Hughes will be there and, and then we'll start selling some bottles as well. And there will be some very special Salazars? No. Salazars? <laughs> There's some big old bottles. Very, 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 very big ones. Nebu nine liter bottles. And, uh, yeah, nine, nine liter bottles. <laughs> okay. Well, um, thanks a million, guys. Uh, I think we'll probably wrap it up there. There's a lot of glasses half full that we can empty now. Um, thank you for talking to me, and I look forward to the official launch in a couple of weeks. Well, recording now. I look forward to the launch. Thanks, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Thank you.